I'm going to be reading Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. Um, if you go, why are we in the book of Acts? Because we are going through the entire story of Scripture this year. So we're attempting to cover 66 books in 52 weeks. And today is actually Luke and Acts. And so that's a lot of chapters of the Bible. And I found myself even this morning going, I'm looking forward to getting through just a single book of the Bible over an extended period of time. Uh, that will come in 2023. So, Luke and Acts, Luke chapter, or sorry, Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. I'll read it, pray, and see what God has for us. Luke writes and says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father had fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. So, Father, as we turn our hearts towards your word, uh, we ask that you would help us sort through the noise of our minds and our hearts and that you would help us to see you more clearly. That though we, many of us in this room, are familiar with this story, that we would be captivated again, that you would cultivate in us awe and wonder and gratitude. In Jesus, uh, who has come, who has rescued us, and who is leading us into life. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So last week we heard Jesus give a crazy promise. One of, at least in my opinions, the craziest promise of all, where he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. And I go, I don't think so. I don't believe that. It would be better if you stayed, if we could, you know, be with you, hear you, you know, be in your presence. He says, but I'm going to send the helper. He gives this crazy promise, it's to your advantage that I go away. And Luke, in his two-volume account, shows just how that is the case. Luke, the writer of both the Gospel according to Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, that there's debate around the whole title, is it the Acts of the Apostles or is it the Acts of Jesus through the Apostle by the power of the Holy Spirit? I guess that one was a little too wordy, so they went with the Acts of the Apostle. He is a doctor, a companion, a historian, a missionary, and this two-volume account, Luke and Acts, gives um, 
a better understanding to it's believed the one who hired him to write and research and do all of this, this gentleman, Theophilus. Theophilus had questions around what he had been taught. You can look at that in Luke chapter 1 in the kind of preface there. And Luke chapter 1 is the beginning of what Jesus started doing and teaching. Then Acts is how Jesus continued that work by the power of the Spirit through the apostles. And he makes a crazy claim that Jesus is still doing and still teaching, though he isn't actually present physically. He says, I gave you this first account. It's what all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up. And then he gives that account of how he was taken up into the heavens. Luke chapter, or is part one, Acts is part two, and what I've been saying through the whole gospel accounts is that all of these, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give these accounts together that give us a bit of a kaleidoscopic, fuller image of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. And since we continue this ridiculousness of alliteration, here's what we're going with. Uh, presence, power, and proliferation, Okay. Presence, power, proliferation. First, presence. God takes on flesh. That's what John chapter 1 tells us. We looked at that last week. And in Luke's account, as you go through it, it gives us an opportunity to meditate on the methods of Jesus. Jesus is clear about what he came to do. He says so much in Luke chapter 4, verse 16 through 21. He, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus, in this moment, at the synagogue, as he unrolls the prophet Isaiah scroll and all of these you know, prophecies about what Messiah would look like and what Messiah would do and how he would be and go about life, he says, this is me. And it's kind of this collective, oh my goodness, as he is making a very large claim about himself. There's themes in Isaiah's prophecy about Jubilee, this idea that the poor would be, uh, their debts would be forgiven, that slaves would be set free. And many commentators and scholars believe that the idea of Jesus uh, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, to set at liberty, to recover sight of the blind, that he is proclaiming good news to the poor, that that category of poor was not just those that are of a lesser socioeconomic status, that it is a much broader category. Joel Green in his commentary says this, in that culture, one's status in a community was not so much a function of economic realities, but depended on a number of elements, including education, gender, family heritage, religious purity, vocation, economics, and so on. 
Thus, lack of substance might account for one's designation as poor, but so might other disadvantaged conditions, and poor would serve as a cipher or a message for those of low status. For those excluding, according to normal canons of status honor in the Mediterranean world, Hence, although poor is hardly devoid of economic significance, for Luke, this wider meaning of diminished status honor is paramount. So Luke goes at great lengths to show how Jesus has brought good news to the poor. And that's just not people that, you know, have nothing but lint in their pockets, but it's people across uh, society that were seen as lesser. Jesus has come and is elevating them and giving them good news. Luke is intentional about that specifically with women. In his, his account, he shows Jesus's interactions with women more than any other gospel writers. And part of the way in which Jesus does that, how he goes about his bringing his kingdom, and this is surprising at least to me, is through meals. Again, this is Luke's intentionality in highlighting this again and again. Meals not as just people uh, cramming food into their face, but, but is a shared experience with one another. It's a bit of an art that has been lost in our day and our age. Robert Karras says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is the, either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. If you think about it, you go, yeah, guys got to eat. But again, there's intentionality in the methods of Jesus. I'm pulling this kind of quick summary of the meals of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke from a little book by Tim Chester that I'll quote again called A Meal with Jesus. He says this, in Luke 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at the home of Levi. In Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In Luke 10, Jesus eats at the home of Mary and Martha. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a meal. In Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their meals rather than their friends. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Any uh, old church people? In Luke 22, we have the account of the Last Supper. In Luke 24, the risen Christ has a meal with the two disciples in Emmaus and then later eats fish with the disciples in Jerusalem. What is going on here? Jesus is intentional in how he brings about his kingdom, and much of that is not just through words that are spoken to people, though he does that. It's through hospitality, it's through presence. It's through being with people and the actual stuff of life. Tim Chester in his book says, there's three ways the New Testament completes the sentence, the Son of Man came, dot, dot, dot. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, Luke 19, 10. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, Luke 7, 34. The first two statements of purpose, why did Jesus come? He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom, to seek and to save the lost. The third is the statement of method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. And this wasn't without accusation. You know, you think that 
you'd see Jesus welcoming sinners and strangers and poor and disadvantaged people. And the religious leaders would go, oh, how nice. He's got a big heart. That's not how it happened. In Luke chapter 7, verse 33, Jesus says this as he's being judged and feels the hatred towards him. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And here's what I love. Jesus is is putting them on blast, but he's not putting them at arm's length. Because in verse 36, it says, one of the Pharisees, that very group that's judging, that's speaking ill of him, that's accusing the Son of God of being a glutton and a drunkard. It's just, it's comical. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And what did Jesus do? He went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Jesus doesn't hold anybody at arm's length, but in his presence, he participates in their lives and speaks and brings good news there. And so I think today we can reflect on and again meditate on the methods of Jesus and the ways in which he brings his love and his presence into the world. He shows hospitality, not simply like Martha Stewart, um, you know, with a cornucopia and whatever we imagine hospitality to be, but welcoming people of all walks of life into his life and into their homes. He brings his love, he brings his presence, he brings his commitment to people and freeing people from sin and shame through meals. He couples his words with deeds, and that is consistent through everything that Jesus does. And I believe this is something that has been lost in our time. And and you can trace out the history. Sociologists have done this. One of the most popular books is Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam that kind of describes the, the transformation from society being a front yard type culture and neighborly and hospitable and all that to a backyard type culture and bowling being one of those things where they're, and they're still, I live kind of near Plaza Bowl, so it's still going on. Um, it just seems a lot more sad than it used to. Uh, and maybe that's because Plaza Bowl hasn't been updated in 72 years. I don't know. <laughs> but through the ministry and methods of Jesus, the power of the kingdom comes. Often not as we would expect or as we would write the story, but transformation in the first century Mediterranean world is happening as Jesus shares his life with real people. Again, I remember asking my kids years ago as I was reflecting on this, how you would change the world, and any of us could answer that question. We have our big ideas and big plans of how we would reach the world. And none of us would say, well, I'd go to a small, obscure place and just spend three years with people eating meals, drinking wine, and getting to know them and speaking good news to these humans. No, we'd go big. You need to get the internet. Okay, I'm going to get off the soapbox. I, I, I sense myself beginning to rail on things, and I'm not. Jesus is good. And the way in which he 
administers and gives his power is through presence, through his presence. And the disciples, and we often get this misconstrued in what power looks like. We often seek and look after power for personal preference. That is that we can control our own little worlds. We want power for self-centered profit. That is increasing our own you know, net worth and possessions and all that. We want power for prominence and position. That the, We all suffer from pride in that. And the disciples throughout the gospel account always have distortions of what Jesus' kingdom looks like and what his power has come to do and bring into the world. And we even see that in Acts chapter 1 after the resurrection. They go, well, okay, now is your kingdom going to come kind of in power and drive out Rome now? Are you going to kind of take up the sword and, and establish the, he, you know, the kingdom of God on earth as a governmental system in, in Jesus again gently and lovingly corrects them. And he talks about what his power is. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And they go, okay, and then we'll drive out Rome? I wonder their thought process. But that power is for witness. Jesus' power, it was subtle, it was subversive, it ultimately is sacrificial on the cross. And as he sends his disciples out in the world before he ascends into the heaven. He, he promises them this power, and what it is is an ability for action. This power is to enable them and equip them for witnessing. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He's saying that your role in the gift I'm going to give you in this spirit is for witness. Again, here's a bit of our hang-up, my hang-up. I want power for more than just witnessing. Again, where do you tend to want power? Is it personal possessions? Is it prideful ego? Is it for prominence? Is it for profit? What do you want and what do you do with Power. Jesus says this Holy Spirit power that he promises to give his followers has a, a singular purpose, and that is of witness in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And, and here's where I think we tend to mislive this, misinterpret this. We go, okay, we're witnesses for Jesus. And sometimes we take witnessing as needing to win an argument. So we go, okay, I'm going to represent Jesus and I'm going to win the argument. I historically have been the worst at this. Uh, I just want to win and I want to win arguments and I want to be uh, seemingly smart and winsome and all that. And, and so in interacting with real people, I just have at times a tendency to be a jerk. You can ask my wife. She has experienced this. You can ask my siblings, especially. When I was 18, 19, 20, 21, and working at a church and on my high horse and all that, just a condescending, not nice person, as I filter what I, yeah. You guys get it? Stronger language could be used, but in this setting, I'm filtering. But the power Jesus gives us is not for winning arguments, Again, it's, it's for witness. And I think 
for some, that may be a bit of the struggle is, you know, you are perhaps word heavy and your witnessing is all about convincing of an argument and this, that, and the other, whatever. And I think as time goes on in the current day and age we live in, a lot of the struggle isn't so much for winning arguments. It's just simply apathy and exhaustion. And so we fail in our witness. We don't necessarily experience the power of the Holy Spirit just because we're overwhelmed and exhausted with all of life. And we have busied ourselves to death to where there's not necessarily room to invite people into our house. There's not necessarily room to uh, engage somebody who doesn't yet know Christ. There's not necessarily room to serve the poor as he's commanded us to do. And so we kind of just go, well, blah. Life is this perpetual blah of scrolling and news and work and obligation. And at the end of the day, it's just blah. And I think when Jesus says, you shall receive power, he's promising something a little bit more than blah. He's promising something a little bit more than getting into arguments with people. And again, the operative word here is you will receive power to be my witnesses. All a witness is called to do is tell the truth about what they've seen and experienced. And again, often we can get off track because we want to win an argument with a person. What Jesus is saying is, have you encountered me? Have you experienced me? Have you seen this beauty? Have you been set free from sin and death and shame? Tell the world, show the world who I am and what I've come to do. But again, we get this sideways and we get overwhelmed in life and Jesus says, no, I've given you power for this purpose. There's no argument to win. There's no power to be gained. It's simply, have you seen the beauty of this king and the work of one who holds all things? And really, the, the miracle of it all is that's how Acts unfolds. Jerusalem, you see in chapters 1 through 7. Judea and Samaria in chapters 8 through 12. And the ends of the earth in chapters 13 through 28. How does it all happen? Well, Jesus is present and the power of the Spirit is lived through and among his people. And as they just go about their lives, they witness to who Jesus is. You can study all the sermons in the book of Acts and they look to display and say who Jesus is, connect him to the story, and then invite people to repentance and faith in him. And a beautiful thing happens. This church is formed. You get kind of the what is often seen as the idealistic picture of what the early church looked like in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. It says, And they, the disciples, the believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so you see in this that they are experiencing life together. They are have, they're under the teaching of God's word. They are sharing a common life. They are breaking bread and having meals together. And they are praying in it. I'm thankful again, it almost seems like utopia, but as you continue to read the book, you see where there are people, there will continue to be problems. 
But when God's people commit themselves to being faithful to Christ, his story, and this witness, amazing, beautiful, powerful things happen in the world. And when the people of God distance themselves from the heart of Christ, then turmoil breaks out, uh, division breaks out, and it's there clear in the text. Just Anthony gets to teach 1 Corinthians in a couple weeks. Can't wait to see that one. Hot mess of a church. But these things go together, and, and as the presence of Jesus coupled with the power of the Spirit meet the people of God where they are, proliferation and the spreading of this happens. The power of God shapes the priorities of his people. N.T. Wright on this passage says, these four go together. You can't separate them or leave them out without damage to the whole thing. Where no attention is given to teaching and the constant lifelong Christian learning, people quickly refer to the worldview or mindset of the surrounding culture and end up with their minds shaped by whichever social pressures are most persuasive. With Jesus somewhere around is a pale influence or memory. You see that time after time, and it is rampant today. When God's people divorce themselves from God's world, uh, word, the worldview just becomes whatever is popular and persuasive in the world. Then, when people ignore common life of the Christian family, the technical term is often called fellowship, which is more than friendship, but not less. They become isolated and often find it difficult to sustain a living faith, where people no longer share regularly in the breaking of bread, the early Christian term for a simple meal that took them back to the upper room in remembrance of Jesus, why we take communion every week. They are failing to raise the flag which says Jesus' death and resurrection are the center of everything. And wherever people do all these things but neglect prayer, they're quite simply forgetting that Christians are supposed to be heaven and earth people. Prayer makes no sense whatsoever unless heaven and earth are designed to be joined together and we can share in that already. Oh, hey, maybe we should have a prayer meeting from time to time. September 7th. Boom. And so what happens is the church does not stay as a monolithic people in the Middle East. You see by chapter 11 of Acts in, Antioch, in the, the city of Antioch that it is a multi-ethnic, multicultural people where they are first called Christians. But what really adds fuel to this whole thing, ironically, is persecution. The fuel for proliferation and the spreading of the gospel in the world is persecution. You see that in the stoning of Stephen, in the uh, persecution of Saul, who then is converted and becomes Paul. As hostility increases, the spreading of the gospel accelerates through the world. And Jesus had said something about the gates of hell not prevailing against the church, not prevailing against him. And you see that in this book. And you see that throughout history. Wherever there's a movement to try and crush Christianity, it spreads. You can see that in our own history as China looked to uh, boot out all the missionaries. And what happened? The church grew and continues to grow. As God's people proclaim Christ, as they love their enemies, as they serve the world in the face of attempted extinction, love still flows. 
I want to take you back again to early church history because it wasn't just daisies and roses. It wasn't smooth sailing for God's people. It never has been. It never will be. But when the church gives themselves to love of neighbor, including enemy, things happen. When God's people turn away from the things of the world and prioritize Jesus as Lord and master of all of their lives, things happen. Justin Martyr, in the second century, writing to the Roman, Empire, uh, Roman Emperor Antonius, says this, We formerly rejoiced in the uncleanness of life, but now love only chastity. Before we used, I love this phrase, magic arts. Uh, I imagine magic the gathering cards, even though that's not what he's talking about. Magic arts, but now dedicate ourselves to the true and unbegotten God. Before we loved money and possessions more than anything, but now we share what we have and to everyone who is in need. Before we hated one another and killed one another and would not eat with those of another race. But since the manifestation of Christ, we have come to a common life and pray for our enemies and try to win over those who hate us without just cause. And later, if you go forward another century or two, Julian, again, a Roman emperor around 360 AD, uh, wrote this. He said, atheism, meaning the Christian faith, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that all the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for help that we should render them. You see, in the early church and in those first centuries, and it's still true today, where God's people experience the presence of Christ in their daily lives, when they depend on the power of the Holy Spirit for witness, proliferation, spreading of this love happens in the world. We don't have the time to, but you can go through and see how Christianity has influenced and developed music, arts, care for the poor and elderly, how the Christian movement has elevated women more than any other movement in history, where uh, the Christian movements have worked to abolish slavery and work for equal rights for all citizens, where there's education, science, uh, the medical profession, philosophy, ethics, all of those have roots in a Judeo, meaning Jewish background, Christian ethic and movement. And so yes, are there many correctives in the world that need to happen where power has been misused and abused? Absolutely, and I'm, if you've heard me talk any amount of time, I'm one to get on a soapbox and rail against all of that. However, we also need to see the good in which God's people have brought into the world as they have been faithful to the call of Christ. What's interesting about the book of Acts is how it all ends in kind of an anticlimactic fashion. At the end of book, the book of Acts, and we don't, again, have time to go through the whole story, the Apostle Paul, who becomes uh, the foremost missionary in the church, is uh, jailed, he's awaiting trial, in Rome, and it says this in Acts chapter 28, verse 30 and 31. He, Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. That's the account that Luke gives Theophilus of the early church. 
clever name for a network would be Acts 29, because uh, yeah, the story continues. In the end, what we see is that the story of Jesus and his people continues. And as Luke began, that Jesus is still doing and teaching in the world. He is still present. He is still working in power by the Holy Spirit. And his kingdom is spreading out into the world. And I thank God that some 2,000 years later, we can sit here today and reflect and thank God that he's waited and brought us into that kingdom and is still bringing people into that kingdom. Ordinary people in ordinary life showing extraordinary love, the church continues. And this is one of the driving forces of my life of asking the question, okay, God, we see how you've worked in history. What about now? What could that look like today in the greater Prescott area? And not looking for showiness, not looking for uh, anything out of the ordinary other than regular people in their everyday lives pursuing Jesus in the power of his kingdom through the habits and rhythms that they have. Of reimagining the beauty of this life that he's given us and what it might look like to invite others into that. What about now and what about today? I think the question remains kind of like the disciples that are looking up in the heaven going, oh, what's going on? And these two men ask him, why are you looking up? Jesus is going to return. He's going to make all things new. Until then, again, you have this power for witness in life. I think what it looks like is that for many of us, we need to constantly allow God by his spirit, by his word to correct us and redirect us. Or maybe I'm the only one that needs constant correction and redirection. It's kind of, it's like parenting in, in a lot of ways. I forget, often I just want to tell my kids what to do or not do, when the most powerful tool is just simply redirection, right? There's correction, but more often it's redirection. Here's the better way for it. I think, again, for us personally and corporately, we need constant correction and redirection. And I'm just simply going to offer up three and then we'll close. Number one, and I'll try not to get too uh, soapboxy. Number one, we need to relearn prioritizing people over politics. Politics matter. Vote, research, get involved. Amen. I've not missed a single election in my life since I was 18. Voted at every single one of them. Researched the candidates. Yes, politics matter. But what matters more than politics is people. And what we've missed in this life is that we prioritize and elevate politics and party above people. And it creates division in and outside the church. God's people should never be known chiefly by what political party they affiliate with, they should be known by their love of people. And so friends, I don't know what that looks like for you. I know for me, it looks like not commenting, not getting in the weeds, and I've messed that up a few times as well. It means loving real people, and for those that do disagree with my position, which I'm attempting to be faithful to Jesus, it's trying to find understanding. It's trying to be patient and loving in that. But again, where do you need to prioritize people over politics.
Second thing, deeper relationships over distraction. And I've spoke to this a little bit earlier that we are a perpetually distracted people. We're constantly connected, but then entirely fragmented. It's this weird irony that we've never had the ability to be so connected and ingrained and in tune with one another's lives, but then we have a complete lack of deep and meaningful relationships in life. What could that look like to pursue deeper relationships with people who matter in your life, your family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, all of that, and to put away and be more disciplined when it comes to distractions? And one practice for me, from time to time, even though it could be a text, make a phone call. Though I uh, may not want to reach out, make a practice of reconnecting. And there's a few of you that are really good at this and have taught me well over the last few years of what it looks like to care in these kind of ways. Deeper relationships over distraction. Uh, finally, more open homes and a little less hurry in our lives. So I'll look at your schedule, who's in your life, who can you have over for dinner, just simply to get to know them and love them. And it doesn't have to be perfect, doesn't have to be all together, doesn't have to be, uh, you know, Martha Stewart or whoever the leading guru is on hospitality and meals or whatever Instagram chef there is of, I don't know, I don't know what that, Martha Stewart's my only reference, so I probably need to update that. <laughs> and find someone new and contemporary. Who, who's, who's a cool chef these days? And, but, but who? Gordon Ramsay. He cusses a lot. Yeah, Rachel Ray. That's a, all right, so what would it look like to have a few more people in your life for a meal? And again, some of you are great at this. You, the, the, there's that gift, and it's not, again, not to say you have to every single day of the week. No, like I'm not trying to throw out more burden and all of that. But see the invitation that Jesus is welcoming us into. Who doesn't want a little bit more of real people love in their lives? Who doesn't want a little bit more of deeper, meaningful relationships in your life? Who doesn't want to share in a good meal with good conversation and good drink? Who doesn't desire that? Like it's ingrained within us, and that's how Jesus met people in the first century. And I believe that's how he's calling and shaping his church to be today, that we are more reoriented, corrected, and, and redirected into life with the light and love of Jesus. Let's pray. And so, God, we need your help. Um, and perhaps for some of us, that means awakening our imagination and clearing out some of the cobwebs to actually see where we are, who you've placed around us, and you would help us there to see the real people, the real needs, and we would meet those with tangible love through the words that we say and the deeds that we practice, that you would make us more congruent with your kingdom, more attentive to your word, and more faithful to your way. God, would you help us to see maybe the unconscious ways we're carrying weight you never asked us to carry? The expectations, the frustrations, 
all of the things that you're asking us to lay down today and the freedom you offer in following you, the lifting of shame, the hospitality, the love that you show us. God, I imagine for many of us that's really foreign because of what we've experienced in this life. And so would you reshape us and reform us today? In the name of Christ we pray, amen.